This is really loud. I've noticed I feel like I'm speaking really loud. If I am, I apologize because I know that I'm only going to get louder as we continue for the morning. But I, I started off the first week of 2020 and I asked you about two questions. I'd like to give thanks for our three gentlemen who preached over the past several weeks to Jimmy Lee, who spoke on culture, to Martin Fong, who spoke on money and generosity, and to Aaron T, who spoke on evangelism last week. I really appreciate each of those messages that they shared with us regarding the beginning of this new year. And I remember distinctly on the first Sunday of 2020, I asked you about these two questions. And for you to answer those personally from a spiritual perspective in regards your own life as a Christian and in your relationship with Jesus Christ, what or even who is important to you and why? And secondly, what do you do to ensure that whatever it is that you value, whatever it is that you prioritize, what do you do to ensure that it remains in that place of importance? And it might be a number of different things that you have, but when it comes to the things of God, whom we are told within the Scriptures to seek first His kingdom. Therefore, He should take priority. We are told in the Shema, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, to you know, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is, is one God, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. We are told that that, is, that is, should be the priority within our lives. The loving and the serving and the seeking of our God should be the priority in our lives regardless. And I know from personal experience, and I think you can all sort of fall into line with this, is that maybe God is not the number one priority in our lives. And why? And so last week, Aaron made something made a point which stuck out to me, and I did like it a lot. See, one of the motivating factors that keeps something in priority or keeps something in its importance is that of urgency. We want to have urgency in our lives, whether we procrastinate or not. When there's a sense of an impending deadline, we automatically think we need to get something done. Professionally speaking, if there are specific standards, if there are certain requirements, if there's a criteria that you need to meet, if there's an ongoing professional development for you to continue in that specific profession, if you have a task that needs to be uh, completed, if you have uh, something that you need to complete before that time is up, before that deadline arrives, the more urgent you become and the more proactive you are in seeking to get it done. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? To get it done. Now, the reason why I went through all of that is that, biblically speaking, we are in the last days. Biblically speaking, we are... We have, both literally and figuratively, a deadline that we have to adhere to. We have been given a task that needs to be completed while we are here because that deadline approaches each and every day. And God, by His grace, has given us signposts about that deadline that is approaching. 
That deadline literally, we might die and see and go to glory and see our Lord, or figuratively, that when the Lord returns to take us home. The fact of the matter is, we are living on borrowed time. Therefore, we should, with that borrowed time, make the most of what God has given us in the here and in the now. And what God has done by his grace has given us signposts for us to actually recognize what is taking place around us. That as we look in these last days, there are things that are taking place which we as a church should be onto and recognizing as it takes place. The condemnation that Jesus gives the Pharisees is this. In Luke chapter 12, 56, he says, Hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? In the King James, it says, To know the sign of the times. Or as Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 16, he says, See then that you walk circumspectly. Not as fools, but as wise. What? Redeeming the time for the days are evil. There are things that are taking place in this world today that are indicators to us as the church of Jesus Christ that, well, Jesus is coming back. We are living in literally the last days. And honestly, whether it might be, and you recognize these signs, whether it might be the fact that we are moving more towards a cashless society, which I think is fascinating. This cashless society where you have, even now, the whole tap and go thing, in a matter of convenience, we are told within Revelation that there'll be a time where we have to get a mark on our right hand or on our forehead, and we're not allowed to buy, trade, or anything. Not even a loaf of bread without having this particular mark. We are told this in the Scriptures, and you see things moving around. Another sign. Watch Israel. I like talking with Pastor John. There's the camp speaker, uh, Mike Piatangitama, who's coming along to camp. He as well, he's got a heart for Israel. But you watch Israel. You see everything in this little sliver, sliver of land over in the Middle East that the world seems to be revolving around and has revolved around for millennia. Why? Because they are God's chosen people. You watch Israel and what's taking place there. You see that as a sign's of the times. You, you see all these things that are taking place, and today what I want to look at is what I call that, what about us in the here and now, about living in these last days. So for this week and next week, as we look at for the theme of this coming year, we are obviously living for eternity. We're not living for the here and now. We're living for the life to come, and so then what is our role? And this week I'm going to look at what does it look like then for us as the people of God to live in these last days. And, and next week, we're going to look at the aspect of living for a divine purpose as opposed to our own purpose in light of these last days. These are not to terrify, it's not to scare, it's not to freak you out, but in order for us to see clearly the importance of and the urgency for us and living for Jesus Christ, living for the kingdom. So I'm going to pray, and I would love for you to join me as we look in the Word together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you that you are a God that is alive, that you are living, and that you are directly involved with each of us. And I pray that this morning that you will stir within our hearts a hunger and a thirst for more of you, that you will give us a desire and a hunger to seek after the things of you and to prioritize the things of heaven over the things of this earth. 
So, Father, please help us now. Please give us a sensitivity and a responsiveness to your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, while I'm not going to look at various signs and things like that regarding last days, there's there's a, a wonderful passage in Scripture that talks about specific attitudes of people, about what cultures are like, about what society is like. And if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Now, I'm going to read to you the first five verses of that particular chapter. I'm reading from the NIV. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter, two, chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. It says this, But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Verse 5, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. If you want to look at the last days and some of the signs of the times that are indicating this is where we're at within history, within history from eternity's perspective, then verses 1 to 5 give us a checklist, as it were. But it's a, a checklist you can look at and think, wow, that's, that's modern-day Australia. This is like modern-day society. You could take any one of these things held within that list, and you could attribute that to most any point in history where you will see those that are boastful, those that are proud, those that are rash, those that are treacherous, treacherous, those that are lovers of pleasure, those that are lovers of themselves, those that are lovers of money and not lovers of the good. If you go throughout history, human history today, you could take a number of things from that list and apply it to every single era within the last five, six, maybe even 10,000 years. And I think you would agree with that. What really stirs me as I read this particular passage is that whilst we have all of these things of what people will be like, we have to understand that who Paul is writing to here and now. This list that he gives is not actually describing what society is supposed to be like. What this list that Paul gives for Timothy's benefit is actually what the church will be like in the last days. This is not describing what 21st century Australia is like, this is describing what the church is like, how the church have now become people who are lovers of themselves, how the church have become lovers of money, how the church has become boastful, proud, and abusive, how the church has become disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love. This is the description that Paul gives to Timothy to be aware of. This is what the church will become in the last days. And what's terrible is that you see these attitudes within the church. You can identify with one or more of these things in your own life because I know I do too. We can see all of these things, most, if not all. Is it any wonder then when you see a society like this, why then the church is like this as well? 
why we as the people of God have allowed the world to influence us in such a way where we are described. The fact that Paul is writing to Christians here, specifically a Christian leader, that is Timothy, and for him to identify the signposts of the last days within his own congregation. He was a pastor at Ephesus looking after these people. For once, once the church, once the church loses sight of who they love, once the church loses sight of what they love, when the church is without genuine agape love, when the church is without self-control, where the church are brutal and lovers of pleasure, what the church becomes is but a shell of what it was designed to be, where it has a form of godliness, but absolutely no power. Now, there are four things that I want to focus on here because it's these four things that you can connect to everything else. I call them the four loves of 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 5. The four loves, lovers of themselves, lovers of money, not lovers of good, and lovers of pleasure. Why do I look at those specific four? Because you can connect every single one of those to each of those loves to each of those loves. So, what will the church be like in the last days? The church will be lovers of themselves. Now, think about this. It has been said that the 21st century and the boom of social media has been one of the greatest indicators of us being in the last days. We have social media platforms that promote who? Me! We live in what's called, and I think it was John Piper who said this, Francis Chan makes references to this as well, we live in the selfie generation. And I can't talk because I looked at my photo album on my computer and I got maybe 70, 80% of those pictures are me with someone else. So I was like, wow, that is terrible. I remember one camp we had, and I took photos of every table. (laughs) More Than Conquerors. It was a More Than Conquerors camp with Yusuf. And there was one, and I just took a photo of every table with me, and the way Amanda edited it to the song, it was like me, and I stayed in the same position, and the background changed. But it was all about me. But we live it, and Sandy remembers it quite clearly. Sorry, Sandy. But you think about this. You've got all of these social media platforms today that promote yourself as an individual. You have YouTube, and you have people who get on there, and all they're doing is, look what I can do. You have Twitter. What's all that about? Listen to my opinion, to my thoughts, to what I have to say. And what's really fascinating about Twitter and all those things is that you get to throw stones from a distance and suffer no consequences. There's a wonderful app called Dry Bar Comedy. I like stand-up comics. The Dry Bar Comedy is actually, um, it's done in, and Kelvin's laughing because he knows it, but it's, um, it's actually, it's all clean humor. It's all clean humor. I think it's actually done by um, Utah. I think it's done by, the, but they get in different artists, and they have this one gentleman called Dwayne Perkins, and he talks about how in the 80s, in the 80s, you, you couldn't, if you didn't like somebody, you couldn't do what you do on Twitter. If you want to say to somebody you didn't like them, you would have to go to their concert right in the front row and then yell at them physically. But what can you do now? I'm going to give you my... Even if I didn't ask for your opinion, I'm going to give you my opinion. That's what's nowadays. 
Why? Because everybody's got a platform. So you have that. You, got, you, you have Facebook. You have Twitter. You have all these different things that promote you as an individual, me as an individual. And then you look and you see the stuff that you think you're missing out on because that's what they have. John Piper talks about this when asked, he asked, is this literally an indicator of the last days when you look at social media? And John Piper wisely said yes and no. Yes and no. He said this, vlogs, selfies, and self-focused social media are often not always an expression of the self-exaltation, self-preoccupation, and self-fascination of these last days. But no, these new technologies are not the emerging of such final experiences of sin. They've always been there. The new technologies are giving new ways to express old sins. So basically what it's saying is, Everybody's been self-absorbed. Everybody's been conceited. Now we just have the avenues by which to promote that self-conceit and that self-absorption to everybody else. But the lovers of themselves. But see, you see this. You see this mentality of me, me, me. What I want, what my thoughts are, what my opinions are, what I think should happen, what I think should be done. You see this consumerist mentality of even when it comes to church, what do I get out of it? What can you do for me? What can you provide me? That's what our mentality is now because this is the whole idea of a lover of self. Now, please don't get me wrong. If it's caring for your family, if you're looking for the best of what's taking place within your home, that, that, that is fine. But we look even at church as this is a service you need to provide for me to make me comfortable, to make me feel better about myself as opposed to what can I give to others? How can I bless others? How can I be there for others? What can I offer for others? This, this is a stark contrast between the truths of Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 5. You can read that yourself, okay? And the worldly mantras, these are the worldly mantras of, if it feels good, do it. Or, or be true to yourself. Or, or love yourself more, or nothing is wrong if it feels good. Do you realize how terrible that statement is? Nothing, feels, nothing is wrong if it feels good. Tommy is laughing because he's like, yeah, because I know a lot of things that are wrong, but it still feels really good. But see, see the contrast. See the contrast where one, the worldly mantras is me. What can I do? What can you give me? As opposed to having the mind of Christ, which looks to the need of others, and how can I bless you? How can, I, how can I better you? How can I, how can I benefit you? And, and what's crazy is, see, we look at the, the world's mantras and we say to ourselves, this is what should be in the church. Is it any wonder then? Is it any wonder then? Now, oh, please, this is not me wanting to, to, to jump on people's backs. This is me not wanting to make people feel terrible. I'm, I, it's not a, it is not my job to convict. That is not my job. That is the Spirit of God's job. But you have to ask yourself something. When it comes to something as simple as, shall we go to the elderly homes? Shall we go to Nordby and bless the elderly people? And the reason you don't go 
How is that demonstrating a love of self as opposed to a love of God? Now, please don't get me wrong. Okay? I'm, I'm, not, okay? I'm not wanting to jump on people's backs. I'm not saying that if you don't go to the elderly, you oh, you don't love God. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that for you and your relationship with God, what takes precedence, a love of self or a love of the divine? Do we have an attitude of the world or the attitude of Christ? See, this, this is what we need to wrestle with in our relationship with who Jesus is. Now, look, I'm not, even with these worldly mantras, I'm not getting into the realm of self-esteem. I'm not getting into the realm of personal value, nor am I attacking such things. What I am saying is this, that we have to be careful with these worldly mantras not to fall into the same trap that Adam and Eve fell into. What I mean by that is this, is that Satan approached Adam and Eve, and in Genesis chapter 3, verse 5, he says to Eve, he says to Eve, he says, you're not supposed to eat of it, because when you do, You'll be as God, being able to decide what is right and what is wrong. That's what he says. So basically he says, if you do this, well, that means you're going to be in charge. You're the one that gets to determine. Those are the things. Don't fall into that trap where you start deciding, I think this is, I'm going to decide what is right and what is wrong outside of God. Don't fall into that trap. Don't, don't become a lover of self and say, I'm going to be the one who decides. The fact of the matter is, even for me, I mean, I'm a 48-year-old man, and even I make the dumbest of choices continually. So I'm really thinking, do I really trust some of the things I say? I mean, even, even what I'm saying now, make sure it's biblical. Even what I'm saying now, you match it up to the Scriptures. But you've got to ask, am I a lover of self and what self wants, or a lover of the things of God? That's a really interesting and really challenging thought. So that's the first love, lovers of themselves. Second love, lovers of money. Now, sadly, you see this attitude toward money in the church as well. This whole idea of I'm going to accumulate as much wealth as possible, as quickly as possible, as easily as possible. But the example of the rich man or the rich fool in Luke chapter 12 Verses 14 to 20. Um, actually, I'll read that for you. If you turn there very, very quickly. Luke chapter four, 12, verses 14 to 20. is a classic example of a person who prioritizes storing things up for themselves, but forgets about the divine and his eternal destination. From verses 14 to 20, we read this. Someone said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I will say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? You want a classic example of this? This past week, we had the death of one of my favorite basketball players, Kobe Bryant. 
41 years old, with his daughter Gianna and with seven other people who died in a helicopter crash. My wife told me that, hey, Kobe died. I'm like, whatever. The man had accomplished much, and somebody asked the question, why is Los Angeles so affected by the death of Kobe Bryant? And I was thinking, why am I so affected by this? I never knew the guy. It's not like he even knew me. I have his jersey. I was going to wear it today, but I thought, that's bad taste. But this one person made this comment. He said, well, the reason why we're affected is because we watched him grow up. He became an NBA star straight out of high school, and for the last 20 years, we've watched him mature. We've watched him get married, watched him go through trials, watched him achieve some amazing things on the basketball court, and now he's gone. And the reason why we're so affected by it is because it reminds us of our own mortality. With all the money that he had, the fact that he, he rode a helicopter to the state to, uh, to, when he had a game, he flew a helicopter there to avoid traffic. Just that's, he had his own private helicopter. He had all, he had all this stuff... And now what does all of that do for him in eternity? Nothing. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. That has done nothing to make himself acceptable to God. It's done nothing to change his nature. It's done nothing to change his very sinfulness or to have his sin forgiven. It's done nothing. So I know for a fact that when he stands before God and if he is not washed in the blood of the Lamb, you know what he's going to say? He's going to hear, depart from me. I never knew you. That's what he's going to hear. That... That's scary because you know why he may not have heard it? Because people like you and I didn't go and tell him. This is the responsibility that you and I have as the people of God, especially being within the last days, to tell your children if your children don't know Jesus, to tell your neighbors if your neighbors don't know Jesus, to tell your your spouses if they don't know Jesus, to tell your parents if they don't know Jesus. Because the fact of the matter is, the urgency is, there is a deadline on their lives, just like there's a deadline on ours. And the thing is this, we have something hopeful to look forward to. We have hope because of what's to come, we're not bound by, because of Jesus. And money has nothing to do with it. That's why in verse 21, Jesus says, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. Now, I stress this same fact over and over and over again. You've heard me say it a number of times. It is not wrong to have lots of money. It is not wrong to be financially secure. It is not wrong to save. It is not wrong to have things for your family. It becomes wrong when having money becomes your purpose, your identity, and your security, like this rich young fool. It is why Paul states in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, that is the love of money, which is the root of all kinds of evil. Because when there is this selfish love for one thing, there cannot be a love for the things of God. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 actually states that, Love not the world, neither the things of the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You can't love both. It's either love being a lover of money or a lover of God. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 6, 24, you cannot love God and money. So you have two loves so far, love of themselves and a love of money. Love of themselves, which can be expressed in a love of money. A love of money you can usually use to justify a love for yourself. But that's the second love. The third love, which I find interesting, you are not lovers of good. So entrenched can we become in the loving of ourselves and in the loving of our wealth that we can in turn compromise everything that God deems as good. 
not what I think is good, what God deems as good. And you see this quite prevalent in the church when the greater good of God's purposes becomes secondary to how we feel, becomes secondary to our own personal comfort, becomes secondary to our own personal standing, becomes secondary to our own ability to get ahead. We would much rather, we would much rather, with quiet determination, go to, great, go to the greatest of lengths, to borrow from a, an illustration given to us last week, we will go to the greatest of lengths to get a free meal for the rest of our lives, than pray for our lost neighbors. We, we, we would much rather, we, I'm serious, we, I mean, honestly, I, I was so impressed with Aaron's honesty last week, the fact that how, him and Kelso and Jono, they're like, pam, 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 you know, and how much time did it actually take, brother, like, from, I know when you got there, and you didn't want to do it, and he didn't want to do it on his phone, just in case he, not, he dropped out. Look at the precautions that we went into. And honestly, a free meal, one free meal for the rest of your life from a really nice place. Man, that's a good deal. That is a good deal. And I, I mean, I, and in all honesty, if you told me about it, I'd be like, I'm in. <laughs> I'm being honest. I, I, I would be, I'm in. I'm in. But you see what I mean? We'd go to the greatest of lengths to do something like that to either to pray for the lost or to, to strike up a spiritual conversation with our neighbor next door. You, you see what? See the difference of the things that we would do. Now you know what I, you know what I say that that that's not being a lover of the good, because the good God calls me to do is to tell people about Him. The good God calls me to do is to prioritize, prioritize His things over my things. Uh, we had a there was a gentleman who knocked on my door. So I was I was lying on the floor trying to keep cool again. It's just, it's just what I do. I was lying on my floor trying to keep cool again, and then the Jorel goes, Dad, someone's at the door. So I go to the door, and there was a guy named Andreas, and he was, he was doing those Marley spoon, those food boxes. So I open the door. It's 45 degrees outside. The first thing I said to him was, bro, come in, man, come in. So he comes in. He says, do you want a drink of water? Get him some cold water. Sit down. We're talking away. He goes, bro, I've got some food. He says, I know Marley spoon. Sign me up. I want to try it. And so we signed them up. And uh, so, yeah, it was a deal. I got 25% off. I, I took Aaron's, anyway. So, but, so he comes along, he does that. He, he, I sign him up, sign, signs me up, get a box, all that sort of stuff. Um, and then when we're talking, he had a bit of an accent. He says, bro, where are you from? He says, from Denmark. I says, what, what, what are churches like in Denmark? Find out he's from a Baptist church in Denmark. And I said, so have you been to a church here? He says, no, I haven't been to a church here. I gave him our church card. Got to talk to him, but just asking him. He's actually originally from Russia. His mum escaped communist Russia when he was a very young boy. And I was like, wow. And I, and I said, can you tell me about it? And his mum and dad split up after that. And his mum went to a church. And the community gathered around her and his family and, 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 and things like that. And I was like, it was absolutely amazing hearing the story of this young man. And I said, so what's your view of God now? And he got to share with me his views on God and how he still believes and things like this. But he, he doesn't have a person. He knows. He knows he doesn't have a personal relationship with Jesus. So I pray for Andreas. It was really nice to, to actually sit down and talk with him. And then it's, it's, bro, you've got to go back up to the sun again. Uh, I gave him, I, I always keep a bottle, a, a glass bottle of ice water in my fridge for me. And I says, bro, a gift. And I gave him, I gave him my bottle of water. If you get thirsty again, come on back, man, I'll, you know, and things. So he never came back. And I was, pray, I was actually praying he could be here today. I was hoping he'd be here today, but he didn't. Maybe next week. Maybe next week. But you see what I mean? The greatest of links that we go to, the greatest of links we go to to get in shape physically, the greatest of links we'll go to to get a position in a job, the greatest of links that we'll go to to 
to get a meal for the rest of our lives, whatever it might be. We go to the greatest, the greatest of lengths for a number of things, but in the context of God's greater good, a good that lasts to eternity, a good that, that has eternal effects on a person's soul and upon their destination, that, that eternally draws ever closer with every breath that passes, then maybe or perhaps we should step up and meet the challenge established by Jimmy when he said, let's try to get church on time. Something as simple as that. Something as simple as, maybe I'm going to spend time reading my Bible one chapter a day. Maybe something as simple as that. Maybe something, maybe something as simple as rearranging things within my life so that I can grow in spiritually in my relationship with Jesus. Maybe something as simple as that. Why? Because that is what God desires for you. That is, that is His longing for you, that you'll grow that you'll grow in Him, and that you'll grow in intimacy with Him. That is His longing for you. But we, but we, being influenced by the world, are not lovers of such things. We would much rather binge watch 25 episodes of some show on Netflix than spend 20 minutes reading a chapter of the Bible and praying over it. That's not a lover of the good. And, and as confronting as that might be, as confronting as that might be, We've got to change our mindset and how we see such things. Because when you look at what the Scriptures teach, I won't read any of those, but you see, these are the goods that God has called us to in our lives. These are the goods that He calls us for our benefit. We read in 1 John that the commands of God, these such things, these goods that God has called us to be, all of these things are for our benefit. They are not grievous. They are not burdensome. They are actually there to liberate us, to ensure that we experience the fullness and the abundance that he promised. But it comes on his terms, not mine. You, you can't. It's, okay, okay I've, I've set myself a goal to be 110 kilos by my birthday. Okay, 110 kilos. I'm 118 at this moment. And so I've, charged, and I've, I've worked it out. So I, I, a kilo a month. A kilo a month. So on, on, on September 21st, 2020, I'm going to be 110 kilos. <sighs> but here's the thing. See, see what I've done? I've, 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 I've looked at it and thought, okay, this is where I want to get. This is what I want to do. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to plan things out so I can achieve that. All of these things God has given us is for the abundance of our relationship with Jesus. The intimacy we share with Him. So maybe we should say, okay, that's where I want to end up. I want to end up close with you, Lord. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to knock off. Instead of watching 25 episodes of, of whatever show I'm watching on Netflix, I'm going to watch two this week. Or two today. Yeah, two today. Two, two for today and maybe two tomorrow. I'm going to cut back on that. And instead of watching 25, I'll watch two. And for the other time, I might read or pray. You know what I mean? Putting practical things in place to help you achieve that. Maybe. Maybe we should do that. Because the reason why I share these with you is because if this is what you know is God's good for you, if this is what I know is God's good for me, then we have this condemnation that falls upon us from James 4.17. To him that knows to do good and does it not, to him it is sin. I want to read that again. To him that knows to, to do good and does it not, to him it is sin. That means if you know what is required from you as a person and a follower and a disciple and a follower of Jesus Christ and you don't do those things, then you are in sin. 
No ifs, buts, or maybes. If you have an attitude towards a brother or a sister that you know you shouldn't have, then you are in sin. If you know that you're not supposed to be hanging with certain people outside of the church, the people that are, that are detrimental to your relationship with Jesus, then that's sin. If, if you are partaking of things, watching things, listening to things that you know you shouldn't listen to because it doesn't feed the spiritual man, then that is sin. And that's not me telling it. That's not me. That's what God says. That's in the Scriptures. That's, if you've got an issue with that, then that's, that's between you and God. But I can tell you this. Don't justify it and say, well, hey, I'll deal with it. No, okay, I remember hearing a preacher say this. Either if you're in some private sin that you're not supposed to be involved with, you're dabbling in things that you shouldn't dabble with, if, you're, if you have something that you're hiding that, from us, and, and well, I can tell you this, whatever thing that you're involved with privately, well, God will deal with you. If you're not wanting to deal with it, God will deal with you, and he'll deal with you publicly. He'll deal with you publicly. He'll make sure. And it's not because he's being a jerk. It's not because he's being oppressive. He's saying, for your benefit and for the benefit of those around you and for the blessing of, of your life, then he'll deal with it publicly. And we told us in the Scriptures, whatever thing's done in the dark, he'll bring it to light. But that's why it says, the church, we're not lovers of good. All right, the last, or the fourth love, lovers of pleasure. How's this to sum up the attitude of the 21st century, first world countries today, lovers of pleasure? It's called a hedonistic society, a self-gratifying, pleasure-seeking, adrenaline-pumping culture that promotes and praises, praises self-aggrandizement and personal gratification. That at the expense of others' personal welfare, pleasure takes the priority. Think about that for a second. I, I did this. Okay. To have some of the most expensive shoes, the most expensive kicks on the backs of some sweatshop that kids have to work in for less than 10 cents a day. To have diamond-encrusted watches that are taken from blood diamonds in Africa so that you can say you have the Rolex that has, has, has all, it keeps wonderful time. Man, a Casio does the exact same thing. Okay, all I'm saying is that we don't, you have people who who would much rather sacrifice their marriages and time with their children so they can watch stuff on a computer that results in a pornography industry that rakes in billions of dollars every year for the sake of personal pleasure, for the sake of, for the sake of self gratification. This is what happens when a lover of pleasure takes precedence over other things. Now, look, God wants us to, to, be, to, to be delighted, to be pleased, to experience pleasure, but experience such pleasure in himself. Genuine pleasure, genuine joy, genuine happiness. It's the reason why, it's the reason why when you read, and what I said before, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things will be added to you. Because the funny thing about pleasure is the more you seek to pursue pleasure for pleasure's sake, the more you avoid it. The more you lose it. You, you can't grasp it. Why? Because pleasure is only, only comes in connection with something else. 
It only does. It, you can't experience other things. If it's pleasure for pleasure's sake, if it's happiness for happiness's sake, if it's joy for joy's sake, then you'll actually find you'll miss out on all of those things. Why? Because you know what brings me joy? Seeing my children happy. That's what brings me joy. You know what brings me happiness? When my wife is happy. You know what brings me pleasure? When, when I see somebody who hears the gospel and responds. You know, what, you know like what's really exciting? You know when Andreas left during the week? I walked out and I thought, thank you, Lord, and I prayed for him. That brought me such an, an, an indwelling, settled peace in my spirit. I was like, wow. I got to share with him. I got to share with a couple of kids at school on Friday. The, the joy of preaching the gospel, knowing that you're sharing a wonderful, life-changing message. I got to share with two students on Friday who said, Joe, can I talk to you and ask you about Jesus? So I'd love to. And I sat down with, with two kids and just shared Jesus with them and walked away. Chris, Chris came to me this morning and she goes, I've got something to tell you. And she told me, she goes, I had like two, three spiritual conversations with my boss. With the, and I was just like, and the joy you feel when you share the love of God with people is, it, it, it's amazing. That, but that's what happens. See, it's connected to something else. It's not pleasure for pleasure's sake. It was the joy of, of receiving such pleasure. That's why when you read in Psalm 37, it says, Take the light in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will do this. He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. Therefore, therefore, with these four loves that I've looked at, with everything that can be attached to them, how do we move away from them? How do we guard against them? And I've taken three things. I'm going to take five minutes. Three things. First thing is this. Remember. Remember. Remember we're on a timetable. Remember that at any stage of our lives, we could come to an end. We are the vapor, as James says, the vapor, the, the, the mist that appears for a little while and vanishes away. Remember how much God loves you with all your faults, with all your sin, with all your failures, with all your mistakes, and that he gave the greatest of sacrifices in sending Jesus. Remember the promise of Romans chapter 5, 8, that God commends his love toward us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Remember how much you're loved by God and that he made you his child. Remember the word of God. Remember who you have become in Jesus. Remember the promises that he has given you in order for you to live. Remember the warfare that we're in. Remember the weapons that he has given us to fight in that warfare. Remember that the enemy is real and seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. Remember that we are weak and yet he is strong. Remember the blessings of what you now have in Christ, in this church, in these friendships. Remember who you are. Remember whose you are. And remember that you're never alone. Remember. Second, repent. Repent. Repentance is about the changing of the mind. But to have one's mind changed effectively, there must be a revelation within the heart that instead of being a lover of self, a lover of your comfort, a lover of your phenomenal success, a lover of your own lives, be instead a lover of God and who he has made you in Christ. This means there must be an understanding of 
thing that the things in this world, the money, the bad things, the selfish pleasure, they are not beneficial to you in your life as a Christian and respond. Love the fact that you are complete in Him. Love the fact that you are made in God's image fearfully and wonderfully. Love the fact that you are ordained in your mother's womb to know God, to love God, and to serve God. Love the fact that you were chosen from before the foundation of the world. In other words, as opposed to being a lover of yourself, take your eyes off yourself, and as a lover of God, you'll discover the greatness of His love on you. So repent. Do away with those things. Repent. Turn away. And the last one, remember, repent, and lastly, reprioritize. When I say reprioritize, I chose that word just because it began with an R. But I want to, it's, it's more than just thinking about it. The change of the mind has to result in action, not just in thought. Look at what you, look at what you do for the things that you really want. We've already mentioned that how you'd move heaven and earth for the girl or for the guy when you wanted to go out with them, how you'd put your head down and your bum up when you wanted to success and have your work acknowledge you, how you'd get up at the crack of dawn and go training and running so you could be part of the first team or run the marathon or be in your peak physical condition. If you'd prioritize your lives for the things of this world, well, imagine prioritizing the things of your life for the things of God and, and the greater impact you could have for God instead. And this starts in the smallest of things. Start praying. Start praying for someone else. Pray for a lost friend. Pray for a family member. Pray for other Christians. Pray for those who are struggling. Pray how you can positively affect those, of, of those people around you. Pray for your family. Pray. Pray for a revelation within your own heart that results in transformation. Perhaps pray that you can be an encouragement to others. Let others know. Let others know that they're not forgotten. Start reading regularly. Start memorizing Scripture so you can hide His Word in your heart so you might not sin against Him. Maybe stop watching so much TV and prioritize feeding yourself spiritually. Uh, make a drastic decision that will change the cultural mindset and not take the easy way out. Don't be like water. Water always looks for the path of least resistance. Don't be like water. Because in the resistance, you are strengthened. You see, I am convinced that when our four loves move from self, move from money, move from the things that are bad, and moves from pleasure through the transforming power of God's Spirit, then in these last days, last days, we as a church would not be identified by this, but rather identified by this, that we would be lovers of others, lovers of generosity, that we'd be reserved, humble, peaceful, obedient to our parents, grateful, holy, loving, forgiving, encouraging, self-controlled, gentle, lovers of good, honest, rational, submissive, lovers of God, rather than lovers of pleasure. That is what should be the defining factors in our lives. And I pray that is what it will be. So I'm going to ask the music team to come up. We'll sing our last song, and then I'll close in prayer after that.